Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Started. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the Heritage Foundation. Uh, today we have um, uh, a great speaker, Daniel Darling. Uh, he's going to be speaking about his new book, The Dignity Revolution. Uh, Dan is a vice president for communications at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he is the author of seven books, uh, including today's title. And he's a contributing editor for Christianity Today's CT Pastors, a columnist for Home Life, and a regular contributor to In Touch magazine. Uh, he also writes regularly for several leading evangelical publications, including the Gospel Coalition. Today, he'll share some of the main themes uh, from this new book, The Dignity Revolution, and how a proper understanding of human dignity grounded in the Imago Dei can help us as we view ourselves, our neighbors, and our politics. Uh, following Dan's remarks, we'll have time for questions and possibly also for answers. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Dan to the podium. Well, it's a privilege to be here at the Heritage Foundation and uh, honored to be here. I've uh, admired the work that goes on here for a lot of years, going back to when I first started getting involved in politics. I was one of those kind of nerdy high school, college kids that was reading, you know, Heritage white papers on family formation and, and economic debt and all that stuff. And so I'm just grateful for the work that goes on in this building to really help shape uh, society and shape public policy. Well, during World War II, uh, Theodore Giesel had used his creative gifts to rally America uh, to the Allied cause. His pro-America cartoons were a fixture in newspapers and magazines across the country. Uh, he, Giesel was a steadfast supporter of President Franklin Roosevelt and the fight for freedom against the Axis powers. Uh, but Giesel wasn't simply patriotic. He his illustrations uh, helped stoke an ugly anti-Japanese sentiment in the United States at a time when, as you know, Japanese Americans were uh, ordered to evacuate their homes, were uh, interned in camps. Uh, if you go back and look at some of his, the images that he drew, they're, they're somewhat uh, racist, depicting Japanese uh, Americans as less than human. So they were, his work was really kerosene on the fires of racial resentment. But something happened in 1953. After the war, Giesel took a tour of Japan. And uh, it was an eye-opening journey uh, for this author and cartoonist. He met survivors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And something changed inside of him. The proximity to the people that he once depicted as less than human uh, changed his mind. So when he returned to America, Giesel apologized in the only way that he understood. He wrote a children's book under the pen name of Dr. Seuss called Horton Hears a Who. Um, though he was raised Lutheran, uh, there's not much in his life to indicate a, 
uh, faith commitment of any kind. But the ethic he presented in Horton uh, borrows, I think, from a uniquely Christian concept that every human life has dignity. Uh, and in his book is this unforgettable line, a person's a person, no matter how small. Dr. Seuss raised a powerful question that <clears throat> has puzzled civilization since the beginning. What exactly does it mean <clears throat> to be human? And what does it mean to see the humanity of others? Uh, regardless of your religious or moral framework, uh, there's an instinctive sense in all of us, in all of our hearts, that whispers the truth to us that being human matters. Have you ever wondered, for instance, why our hearts are splintered by human suffering in ways that don't match the grief of the grief of any other kind of loss? Have you considered why our hearts are moved by human goodness in ways that don't match our joy from any other experience? We react this way because deep inside every one of us is a sense that humanity matters. As a Christian, I would argue that this idea of human dignity originates in the Christian story. Now, the historian Timothy Shaw says that apart from the Christian scriptures, classical civilization lacked the concept of human dignity. Um, in fact, if you do a cursory reading of even like, say, Roman society, you'll find that there's not much of a concept of human dignity. Now, granted, there are traces of the concept of dignity in other religions, such as Islam and Judaism. There's glimpses of human dignity in the philosophers. Uh, but those traces are only filled out in full, I believe, by the Christian story. And those glimpses found in the philosophers or other religions are uh, signposts, I think, to Christianity's very exalted view of humanity. Even in our secular age, we're building on foundations found in the Bible. As one scholar says that attempts to define or explain human dignity are explaining in non-religious terms a persuasive concept that had long before come to light through biblical revelation. Now this may sound strange given that human rights seems to be more defined, defended, and talked about today than in any era of human history. Uh, we live in the age, for instance, of the United Nations, which was formed in the aftermath of a bloody half-century of war and genocide and totalitarianism. Uh, this body gathered the world's leading thinkers and ethicists to create what became known as the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, which offers, uh, and I quote, recognition of the inherent dignity of all members of the human family. Now, obviously, we know the UN has a, shall we say, mixed record of consistency on human rights. Um, but this document has been used as a basis uh, to fight genocide and other injustices, top corrupt governments, to prosecute uh, war criminals, and to help fledgling governments uh, write their constitutions. All of this is good. And yet there's something profoundly interesting about the way that this statement was drafted. This beautiful declaration of human dignity is built on really nothing at all. Uh, the ethicist Gilbert Melander writes in his book, Neither Beast Nor God, he says, while these philosophers were able to agree on many particular claims, they were perhaps unsurprisingly unable to agree on why these claims were true. Unable, that is, to develop any shared vision of human nature or the human person on which such claims could be based. These thinkers, the most credentialed ethicists in the world, could articulate that human dignity matters, but they could not articulate why. Melander says, I doubt there's any way to derive a commitment to equal respect for every human being, 
from the ordinary distinctions in merit and excellence we all use in some sphere of life. It is grounded, rather, not in our relation to each other, but in our relation to God. In other words, there's no basis for human dignity without a connection to God. Without taking account of the divine, we're left with a view of human dignity based on that individual's merit or excellence, based on some societally agreed to or government-imposed yardstick. And if the last century teaches us anything, that shifting metric is dangerous. This is why the philosopher uh, Oliver O'Donovan says that any idea of human dignity is and only can be a theological assertion. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that only Christians have recognized human dignity, nor does it mean that Christians have always understood and practiced human dignity well in the cultures in which they were situated. And it certainly does not mean that in our day, Christians are always and everywhere treating others with greater dignity than those who are not Christian. But it remains the case that the basis for human dignity is found in statements like the UN Declaration are borrowed from the Christian story. The Bible's robust view of human dignity is one of Christianity's best gifts to the world. So what does Christianity say about being human? Well, Genesis, the book of beginning, the book of beginnings contains in its first chapter a profound definition of what it means to be human. Moses, the human author of the opening book of the Bible, contrasts the origins of animal and plant life with the origins of humanity. And he uses exalted language to describe God's crafting of human existence. The rest of creation is spoken into existence by the word of God. But human life, Moses says, is sculpted by the hands of God from the dust of the ground. And into humans was breathed the breath of life. And most importantly, humans are, Moses says, twice, he says this in the creation account, they're created in the image of God. Now, there's a lot of beauty and mystery here. To begin with, we're being shown that the creation of humans was a divine event in the councils of the triune God. Let us make man in our image. It implies a discussion among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Nowhere else in God's creative acts is this kind of deliberation discussed. No other part of creation, from stars to starfish, is described with such specific and exalted language. So what is it, exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, it means both that we are not God and also that we are not animals or angels either. And to acknowledge the fact that we're made in his image means embracing both humility and enjoying dignity. Our dignity flows from and is rooted in the truth that we are like God. In other words, you're more than simply the sum of your parts. You're not merely a highly evolved mammal. You're not just a collection of atoms. You're not just what others see or the combination of others' verdicts on you. You're made in the image of God, crowned, the psalmist says, with glory and honor. And yet our humility grows in the soil of the truth that we are not God. You're not the center of your own universe, the master of your own fate. You're not the arbiter of right and wrong. You cannot find sufficient reason for your existence or fulfillment in your existence from within. Part of being made in his image means that God has bestowed on us certain godlike characteristics, such as the ability to reason, to think, to create, to love, to mourn. 
These are abilities that make us distinct from the rest of even the highest form of creation. We must be careful, however, not to reduce what it means to bear the image of God to mere function. If we limit human dignity simply to those unique human traits, it has a disastrous impact on the way we see those whose cognitive godlike abilities have been diminished in one way or another, for one reason or another. The view that worth is based exclusively on certain virtues or gifts or contributions to society makes dignity and worth fleeting and uncertain. And it opens the door to deciding that certain groups have less God-given dignity than others. In fact, it is dangerous to reduce the ground of human dignity to what we do or what we offer, rather than who we are. You were valuable before you did anything. I would still be valuable if, even if I were rendered unable to do anything. So being made in God's image, image also gives us certain God-given responsibilities. We're not, we are not God. We are instead under God. In his work uh, created in God's image, Anthony Hokeman writes, when one sees a human being, one ought to see in him or her a certain reflection of God. In the creation of man, God revealed himself in a unique way by making someone who was a kind of mirror image of himself. No higher honor could have been given to man than the privilege of being an image of God who made him. To the extent that we mirror God, we also represent God in the world. And one way to understand this is to think of human dignity structurally and directionally. Structurally, we have dignity and worth, regardless of our usefulness or our mistakes, because we're created after God's image. Directionally, we were created to image God to everyone and everything around us, a response to our unique place in his creation. So we don't simply enjoy being made in God's image. We are to live it out in how we relate to the rest of his creation. We are not gods. And this world is not here to serve and worship us. We are mere imagers or image bearers of the triune God. So at a basic level, Christians have always understood this. Uh, but it's possible that we have not fully wrestled with profo the profound implications for how we see ourselves, how we see God and how we live in the world. Every generation has struggled to reckon with the full implications of this idea. And today is no different. While most of, us know, most of us know that humans are created in the image of God, at least those of us who are people of faith, we often fail to recognize the image of God in others, or we recognize it in some groups, but fail to recognize it in others. In a technologically advanced world where we are increasingly made aware of assaults on human dignity through racism, war, abortion, violence, and disease, and many other things. We're often confused at how we should react, what a Christian response looks like. This is why I think it's urgent to see that a conscious recovery of the idea of human dignity, because that will enable us to engage a complex world and how we think, what we say, and how we act. If we don't keep front and center the great truth that every person is a person made in God's image, then we'll prove to be callously indifferent to the needs of our neighbors. The image-bearing and image-based human dignity is not a new concept. At her best, this belief has shaped the way the church has acted on behalf of the vulnerable. 
We can go so far to say that the church has most fulfilled its task when this belief has been most celebrated and appreciated. The theology of human dignity has informed Christian witness in some form or another for 2,000 years. In the 5th century, Augustine, both in his confessions and in his commentary on Genesis, marveled at the greatness of humanity, a greatness he described in God's creative acts. Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century wrote of a man being in his being in the image of the nature of the creator. Lactinatius in his 3rd century Divine Institutes argued for the uniqueness of mankind above the rest of creation. And you can find a similar thread throughout church history all the way up to the present time. Yet at the same time, we must admit that the behavior of some in treating all people as being made in God's image has been far from perfect. Tragically, Christians have sometimes used the Bible to either justify or ignore assaults on dignity, like racism or slavery or genocide. At times, the church has had to learn from those outside the church what it means to treat particular groups in a way that is consistent with what the church professes to believe. I would argue that these arguments have either been a deviation from or a willful ignorance of the Christian view of human dignity. And it's always a recovery of Christian theology that has moved Christians to repent of sinful ideologies and work for justice in the world. Well, today, the challenges to human dignity are as serious as have faced any generation. Every day across our timelines, we see all kinds of incursions on the human experience. War, poverty, racism, abortion, sex trafficking, violence. And those are just the things we see at the moment we're checking in. This is why I think a recovery of robust of a robust Christian vision of human dignity is vital if we're to represent God as his imagers in this world. And we don't have to look too far into history to see how the denial of human dignity in society has led to catastrophic and gruesome violence and atrocities. Francis Schaeffer said that if a man is not made in the image of God, nothing then stands in the way of inhumanity. In his memoirs, John McCain wrote about his time in the Hanoi Hilton. And one of the things he said was, he saw up close what can happen when people lose the idea of human dignity. I'd like to share a personal story of how this impacts my family in a personal way. At first, the grainy, sped-up, black-and-white footage of men, women, and children being lined up and shot, their bodies kicked into open graves, looks like something from a silent film. But these are images from a real event. Later, as I walk through the cool, narrow corridors of Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, listening to the narrator walk me through history, looking at the brutal instruments of death, and running my hands along the artifacts collected from the dead, everything feels somehow strange and otherworldly. As the horrendous truth closes in on me that the horrors depicted and described in this place did not happen inside a movie or a novel. What happened in this world and happened to real people. Some of them are in my family tree. My mother is Jewish. My great-grandparents fled Poland and Russia at the turn of the 19th century in search of a better life and came to America. But if they hadn't, and their 
Their journey here was perilous and uncertain. If they hadn't, perhaps I would never have stood viewing footage of those human atrocities. Perhaps, and probably, it would have been my grandparents falling into those open graves. There in that museum, I saw piles of shoes, glasses, children's toys, people, people with hopes and dreams, people ruthlessly hunted, captured, and killed. And then in a large round room that looked like a planetarium, stars on the ceiling represented children, 1.5 million of them. In each star, I imagined the face of one of my children, vulnerable and innocent, marked for death. The question most often asked in the narrowing corridors of Yad Vashem is, how could people let this happen? And there's an interesting assumption that lies behind that question, an assumption that is unsettling to unearth. It is this, we doubt our own ability to either perpetrate or tolerate such evil today. When we ask, how, how could people let this happen? We are saying that we are convinced that such a thing would be impossible in our society, in our day. We have convinced ourselves that the progress of history means that today's world, or at least the part of today's world in which we live, is no longer capable of witnessing, allowing, or perpetrating heinous acts. We have persuaded ourselves that by saying or tweeting, never again, that we can stop it. But history suggests differently. The Nazi regime did not come into power in a developing nation under the spell of pagan ideology. Hitler rose to power in a 20th century Germany in a civilized and predominantly outwardly civilized Christian country. Yad Vashem will continue to stand as a sober monument to humanity's bent toward dehumanizing others. And what has resonated with me since my visit is the gigantic wall displaying a timeline of art during the Third Reich. I cannot shake the memory of the way in which Anti-Semitic artists portrayed Jewish people. It was a slow, systematic dehumanizing of a people group. First people were portrayed, the Jewish people were portrayed as villains, scapegoats for the economic distress in Germany. And then they were portrayed as unenlightened. And then unenlightened, from unenlightened people, they were portrayed as animals. And so you see artwork that has Jewish people portrayed as rats or other kinds of animals. People made in God's image, disabled people, gypsies, the list goes on, become subhuman. People become problems and a desire for compassion is replaced by a search for a solution. This same bent toward dehumanizing enabled Americans to participate in the trafficking, selling, and ownership of black slaves during much of her history, and even enshrine this concept of subhumanity into law. Nearly a century later, as Martin Luther King Jr. marched for the civil rights of minorities, he famously declared, I am a man. Because he recognized that the question of humanity lay at the heart of the issue of civil rights and of racism itself. He was saying, could you see me as a human being? You see, we're fond of asking ourselves today if we'd be on the right side of justice in each of these moments. Would we risk everything to hide Jewish people in Europe? Would we work with William Wilberforce to end the slave trade in England? Would we march with Martin Luther King against white supremacy? But the answer to that question 
is not found in some self-righteous historical navel-gazing, but in looking around and asking ourselves where human dignity is being assaulted today. Are we willing to stand up, even at personal and political cost, for those who are being marginalized and dehumanized? This is the case I'm making today. As a conservative, conservative, I'd like to plead for a conservatism built less on grievance and more on the concept of basic human dignity. We should be the people, the tribe, the movement, who is willing to take the most risks to defend, protect, and work for the humanity of those who have the least agency and the least power. And I think we can do that. We already have the moral vocabulary given to us by the countercultural, heroic, courageous, pro-life movement. In 1973, everyone thought the abortion question was settled. But for those who see life where others see more mere tissue or flesh, this was just the beginning of the fight. The pro-life movement has set on the national conscience a question nobody can avoid. If an unborn life has a heartbeat, unique DNA, and is not just potential for life, but is life itself, how can we be okay with an industry that systematically eliminates that life? So we have stood up, and we have pointed to that baby in the womb and said, hey, wait a minute, there's a person here worthy of protection. The dignity of the, most, of the least defensible among us is why we come every year in the rain and snow and sleet and march for life. It's why we volunteer at clinics around the country, coming alongside vulnerable women and their babies. It's why we file court briefs, why we write legislation, why we vote in elections. It's why we're willing to be portrayed as extreme and backward by much of pop culture and by many in the media. We do this not because we love politics, but because we have the moral vocabulary that every human life, regardless of his or her utility, regardless of his or her cognitive ability, regardless of his or her potential, is worthy of dignity and respect. So we have the moral vocabulary. But imagine if we apply this to other pressing issues around us. Imagine a conservatism that, even while debating difficult and complex national policies, saw God-given dignity in the immigrant or the refugee. Imagine a conservatism that rejected Darwinian arguments that the flourishing of one group of people is an obstacle to the flourishing of another group of people. Imagine a conservatism that listened instead of reacted to the plight of those in minority communities. Imagine a conservatism that valued institutions and communities that cared about the common good, that worked hard to see those, even those who disagree with us, as ideological foes, not enemies to be vanquished. This would be, I think, a conservatism that truly lives up to its name. Conserving the good, the highest good being the basic decency, liberty, and dignity of every human life. Politics is necessary, we know that. But there, is there a way to do politics that transcends the zero-sum, soul-crushing way that it's often conducted? I think we are, in many ways, at a crisis point in our society. Francis Fukuyama says it best in his new book on dignity and identity politics. He says, democratic societies are fracturing into segments based on ever narrower identities. 
threatening the possibility of deliberation and collective action by society as a whole. This is a road that leads only to state breakdown and ultimately failure. Unless such liberal democracies can work their way back to more universal understandings of human dignity, they will doom themselves and the world to continuing conflict. I think we need to imagine a wholly different kind of politics. A politics not as the ultimate end, but as a way of helping to advocate for the human dignity of those whose voices have been diminished. Imagine a movement that looks around and sees those we've been conditioned not to see. Imagine a political system where we hold loosely to our tribal affiliations, but hold firmly to our brokenheartedness about the vulnerable. We hold firmly to our theology of human dignity and our hope in the power of God's spirit to change people, systems, and nations. And we hold firmly to our pursuit of the true and the good and the beautiful. That would be a politics worth having. Seeing people as God sees them, created in his image, means we will often have to refuse to prioritize one interest group above another. It means we'll have to stop compartmentalizing our views of human dignity. In my work on this, just to be honest, I've seen younger evangelicals who are rightly, wonderfully drawn to speak out on behalf of refugees and victims of human trafficking and the poor, but who are also tempted to silence on behalf of the unborn, who are embarrassed to talk about religious liberty or family structure because this would put them in agreement with more conservative older generations who they perceive as the enemy. And I've seen older generations of evangelicals rightly concerned about the dignity of unborn life and religious liberty and marriage hesitant to speak out on issues of race and poverty because it might put them at odds with their some ideological allies. I see one cause pitted against another as if human dignity is a zero-sum game. And I, I say we need to stop choosing. We need to start caring about dignity wherever it is undermined and assaulted. I think we need a fully-orbed pro-life vision that fights for human dignity wherever it is compromised, whether in the womb, in our cities, at nursing homes, in the halls of power, or in a refugee camp. We should speak out with whatever power and influence we possess for those whose voices have been silenced. Because, as Dr. Seuss says, a person's a person, no matter how small. Um, I'll call on you, uh, state your name, uh, make sure it ends with a question mark at the end, question, uh, and then Daniel will be able to uh, offer responses. Uh, so we'll go right uh, in the middle, in the back. Hello, thank you for the talk. Thank you for the book. Uh, I'm Jameson Capola from the American Association of Christian Schools. I'm curious to know um, your thoughts about uh, the audience for the book. And it, and so that's one part of the question. The second part of the question is because it seems like the message that you're giving is very compelling, but at least large segments of the culture have rejected Christianity as the, you know, the thing that provides human dignity, and they're looking for it through other routes. So um, if the book is designed for Christians, is there anything in it that helps bridge that gap with the culture to, to re-engage that Christianity is the, the source of the human dignity they're looking for, but largely reject the message that Christianity arrives at to achieve it? 
that I just sort of mentioned in the beginning that even these notions of human dignity have are borrowed from the Christian the Christian story. I think the Christian story has the most robust vision for dignity. Um, and so I think you come at it that way. I, I think of, you know, Tim Keller just spoke to the parliament in Britain, and he sort of made that case, that even the things about which you criticize Christians for, rightly criticize us for gaps that we have in terms of, our, you know, sometimes we're blind to injustices and things. Even that ethic that points that out borrows from the Christian ethic. So I think you do it that way. But more importantly, I think, as you know, the audience is Christians across the spectrum because as Christians live out this idea of human dignity and, and come alongside the most vulnerable, uh, it presents a compelling witness uh, that I think is attractive in many ways uh, to those who are outside the faith. Does that make sense? Thanks. Thank you for your talk. Um, based on your last comment on his question, mm -hmm. my name is John Ferry. I'm an, a local architect. Okay. Um, would this be the basis for a third party? <sighs> Gosh. <laughs> um, man. Yeah, this is off the record. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I. A human dignity party would be would be great, you know. I, it, is it possible to, to third parties always seem like a sort of of a mirage, you know? They never seem to be able to form and and come together like that. I think more importantly, it's a call for Christians to not be so uh, aligned with one side or the other, not not to be, um, as I say, catechized by their party or their tribe, but by their faith, you know, let their faith shape their politics, let their politics shape their faith. So as you get into voting and party, it gets messy, right? I think we do have to be part of institutions. Uh, we do have to make voting decisions. Uh, institutions are imperfect, um, and that's okay. I don't. This is not a call to withdraw. It's a call to engage deep, more deeply. But I think it's it, it's an idea to hold our parties and our movements more loosely, so they're convenient vehicles. Uh, but let's not be shaped by them. Let's let us be in these institutions and shape them in a, in a better way. So for some Christians, that's going to mean, you know, voting, joining, and being part of the Republican Party and trying to shape it in a way that's more advocating human dignity. For others, that might be, you know, being part of the Democratic Party and trying to do it uh, something similar there. Um, but there should always be a kind of, you know, as a Christian, if I can speak as a Christian, you know, First Peter says that we're sojourners and strangers. And as sojourners and strangers, you know, knowing this is not far, fully our home, you know, we should always feel a little dissonance. There should always be, feel a little uncomfortable in any earthly movement, right? So even though we have to join institutions and, and be part of parties and make voting decisions, we shouldn't, we should always feel a little uncomfortable, if that makes sense. Is that any question? So Jim Carapano? No, uh, here it is. Um, so if I could just get two quick questions, I want to get both on the table. One is, um, so on the one hand, we have European values, mm -hmm. which the main, mainstream Europeans trumpet, but yet they're increasingly uncomfortable with religion, which mm -hmm. theoretically is the foundation of European values. So I just 
wonder if you have any thoughts on, on bridging that gap. And the other question is, is I really appreciate your comment about the difference between older and younger conservatives. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that we put a lot of effort into is, is having conservative understands that human rights in terms of foreign policy is actually a, should be a bedrock kind of mm -hmm. conservative issue. Sometimes we break down on that because we'll talk about an issue of refugees. Like our, our prescription is, hey, if the better answer is to deal with the Mm -hmm. deal with the political situation that's creating refugees rather than feeling good about accepting 14 refugees in your country, right? doesn't mean you were indifferent to the mm -hmm. state of refugees. And so I, I just wonder if you have some thoughts about this um, reaching out, um, broadening the conservative understanding that, that dealing with international human rights issues is actually something that ought to be organically conservative. Yeah, there's a lot there. So um, the first part, European values, I think you're right. I think it's going to be hard for Europe to have the sort of values if there's not a moral basis for it, right? I mean, you know, this is something the founders understood that even though they didn't want a state church, but, you know, necessarily, I mean, uh, they wanted freedom of religion. They understood that a society without a sort of moral morality and virtue, you know, it, it's it's not going to be good. And I, so I, th that European experiment I don't think is going to work without a bedrock of of Christianity underneath it, at least you know, a vibrant church, if you will, a vibrant religion. Um, the second part, um, I do agree with you. I think human rights should be a, a part of conservatism. Um, you know, foreign policy, I mean, good people have differing views on what that looks like, you know, and, and how much, uh, you know, how much, uh, you know, aggression the United States should have and, and what areas we should intervene and all that. But I do think it is. I think a wealthy nation like ours does have a certain measure of responsibility to do what it can to alleviate suffering around the world uh, in a way that also accords with its best values and, and all those things. Um, when it comes to refugees, I think it is a, you know, immigration and refugee policy is a very difficult issue, and nations obviously have to make decisions. They have to secure their borders. That, you know, America can't take everybody in. Um, but I do think we could... But I do think we can take more than we do. And I do think the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, and you have, you have the largest displacement of human beings in recorded history, the whole refugee crisis. And, you know, we're, we're lowering our refugee numbers. And I, so I think, I think we could do better. I think we could, we could do more. I think to whom much is given, much is required. So I, th I think we... I think there's more we can do. And, and more importantly, what I'm encouraging Christians to think and do, regardless of where you fall on immigration quotas or immigration reform or how that complex thing should be worked out, the way we see immigrants, uh, that we shouldn't be scapegoating immigrants. We shouldn't have this Darwinian idea that the flourishing of these immigrants over here is an obstacle to the flourishing of these people over here. You know, that I don't, I don't think that's, that's healthy. Does that, does that answer your question? Hi, Ian Swanson. I work for Senator Ben Sass. Um, I have a two-part question. Number one, I uh, never thought I'd have to say this, but it seems that the answer to get people to do what you're talking about requires courage. Mm. Um, and so how do you, in your pastoral ministry, convince people to leave the uh, protected confines of their political partisanship and uh, actually fulfill our biblical call first and see themselves as Christians before we see ourselves as a member of a political party. 
And then second, what would you say to pastors specifically, what role, if any, do they have in helping educate Christians about the responsibilities that you were just talking about? It's a great question. I have a question for you. If you could ask the senator, did he think Nebraska would be this bad this year? Okay, just I just had to ask. Um, um, so, first question: I think it does take courage. Uh, we do need political courage, and courage means sometimes um, having the, the the courage to speak against your own tribe, you know, uh, and say, you know, I am this way, you know, I'm this is my tribe, this is where I belong, but here's areas that where we're wrong, and have that sort of courage. I think Senator Sass has had had courage to speak out on things that, you know, um, even even sometimes within conservatism. Um, I think on the ground, though, you're right. I think it actually starts in, in communities before it gets to the national level. And, you know, if I could speak for pastors and churches, I think it does start with pastors and, and any religious leaders in their, in their communities uh, to challenge. We need to challenge our people, right? So, for instance... You know, if I'm pastoring in Nashville, Tennessee, which I do, uh, or in, you know, deep south Alabama, I could preach a message on Psalm 139 and the sanctity of human life, and I should be doing that and talking about abortion, and I should be. And my people will love that. You know, they'll amen that. They will not disagree with that. But then when I talk about human dignity and I apply it to, say, immigrants and refugees, you know, it it hurts a little bit, you know, because it, it challenges them. I, so I think we have to challenge the people in our communities when we're making application, we're applying the scripture to the culture and not just apply it to, to sins that are out there that we love to rail against, but sins that are inside. I think it's the same thing. You know, I talk to pastors and church planters like in Berkeley, California, right? And they're going to preach a sermon on justice from Amos. and Their people will love that, right? But they also need to talk about the justice justice for the unborn, uh, and, and challenge their people there, see? So I think within our context, we have to challenge our people's thinking, um, if that makes sense. And, ha and I think that's what political courage is, uh, and uh, to, to be willing to, at times, speak up, uh, even against some of our friends. Sorry about the Nebraska question. Had to go there. Good afternoon. I'm Terry Baker. Um, you had mentioned the church mm -hmm. several times during your speech. Um, number one, I, I was curious as to what you meant by the church. And then secondly, uh, how much of an obstacle do you think um, the latest revelations are about uh, what's going on in the Catholic Church? Uh, in the United States and, and worldwide will have, and how much of a detriment do you think uh, that will be as far as getting out the message that's in your book? So we could have a Catholic-Baptist argument about what the church is. I don't think we want to do that. Uh, <laughs> mainly because I don't want to argue with Ryan about the Reformation or anything. I just Not this much. No. Um, but, I, you know, I'm talking about people who follow Christ, you know, as the church. Um, 
the second question I think is an important one. You know, how, how damaging is all these revelations? Uh, you know, right, you know, this month, the last few months, we've been talking about the, you know, the, the abuse stuff going on in the Catholic Church, but it's not just confined to the Catholic Church. Uh, I mean, evangelicals are having, we're having our own conversations. We're having our own institutions rocked by some of these issues. I think it is really, it's really damaging to, to Christian witness. Um, at a time when, you know, all of our institutions in public life are really, I mean, there's just no trust in our institutions. I mean, you go across society, there's very few, if any, institutions that have not lost public trust. Uh, we're in a very anti-institutional age. And so I think we have to rebuild that trust by having accountability, by living out the gospel, by returning to what what matters. You know, I think part of the reason that uh, for some of these abuses have gone on for so long, whether it's in the Catholic uh, churches or in evangelical churches or other other uh, religious organizations is that there's sometimes been more of a uh, desire to protect the institution than to actually do what's right and justice. And I think whenever we sort of get into that mindset, uh, we really ultimately we we do the wrong thing, but we also undermine the credibility of the institution itself. So. Uh, Brady Weller, thanks, Dan. Appreciate your book. I appreciate you coming here. Um, I have a question kind of, I guess, for pastors and for people who speak publicly um, often. Do you think that pastors should be more, um, I guess, explicit, uh, more definitive in their stances on these issues? Um, you know, sometimes in church, a pastor might give a sermon um, and say it's on human dignity your congregants might apply it to the issues that they feel comfortable mm-hmm. applying it to, like you said. Um, how explicit should pastors be in saying, this is, an, this is okay to believe, and this really um, is going to put you outside the confines of yeah. you know, where the church universal, or maybe it's a local church. Um, what kinds of lines should pastors draw there? I think, I think there's, a pastor should be more explicit sometimes and sometimes less explicit. I think we should be more explicit in applying the scripture, applying this idea of human dignity to issues, you know, that are very clear, right? In terms of, you know, racism, um, uh, abortion, all these issues, uh, even issues that we're unafraid, that we're afraid to speak up on, maybe that might be controversial within our tribe, character, virtue, all these things that we, that are unquestionably come from, from scripture. Um, I think where we need to be careful is opining and having opinions or, or acting like the Bible has an opinion on things that are a matter of prudence, right? So um, I happen to like the last tax bill. I thought it was great. Um, not everybody agrees with that. You know, I can't get up in church and say, if you're a Christian, you should be in favor of this. Actually, what happened was a lot in the opposite. I saw pastors tweeting like, this tax bill is a sin against Christ. I'm like, ah, I don't know if you could say that. I mean... That just sounds a little bit, you know, things like that. So I think we have to be careful. I can't tell you the biblical view of, you know, a line item veto or where the top marginal tax rate should be um, or, you know, tariffs versus free trade, even though I have an opinion. Um, But I do think the Bible is clear on things. And I think that's where pastors in their communities have to really help form their people. I, I think one of the things that's happened is, at least in our generation, you know, we've been so afraid to be political in our churches uh, because we've seen a generation that maybe did that wrongly 
that we actually don't talk about any of these things, right? And so, um, in doing so, I think we outsource this formation to, you know, other high priests of the culture, whether it's talk radio, whether it's uh, cable news, whether it's pundits, face, you know, crazy uncles on Facebook, whatever. Um, and I think we need to get back to forming our people for living in this world, uh, which means that we, you know, we apply the gospel to specific issues that are happening in the culture and, and uh, help, help our people form, form these ideas. Um, we don't want churches to be partisan, but churches should be, I think, in some ways, political. The gospel is a pretty political statement. It says that there's another king and another kingdom, and the rulers of this world are temporary, and that's a pretty political statement. So that's, that's my view. Hi, Jamie Dangers with Congressman Lamborn's office. I wondered if you could speak to the whole zero-sum uh, game. I think with uh, the intersectionality, um, there's so much in our culture that sort of ascribes dignity or a double dose of dignity to victims and um, sort of takes it away from the offender or the offending culture or bystanders or whatever, and I wondered what you would say to that. Yeah, I think uh, that's one thing I try to talk about in my book about the sort of zero-sum game when it comes to human dignity. So if you advocate for the unborn, you'll, you know, you can't also advocate for racial justice. Or if you advocate for racial justice, you can't advocate for the unborn. And I see this actually played out in a number of ways. You know, whenever there's a a mass shooting, um, sometimes well-meaning pro-life folks will say, "Well, well, yeah." You know, so many people were shot today, but so many millions are killed every every year in abortion. And and I understand the impulse to do that, but it, it's as if these lives are more valuable than these, and they're all they're all valuable. We should mourn any time blood is shed. Or I see on the opposite. I have friends that really work for racial unity, racial justice, and they will say, you know, almost kind of mock pro life people for being pro life. I see a lot of that in the progressive left, particularly among progressive evangelicals, like that there's something wrong with you if you're pro-life. You only care about the, the baby when they're in the womb, and you don't care about them afterwards and all that. And, and it's not a zero-sum game. We can do both. We can advocate for life wherever it's being assaulted. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. Side and uh, Dan will sign them if you want him to.